Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Thanks, sponsors, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, Compsy.com, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Tops, Upper Deck, and Panini. Some outtakes. Actually, a lot of times I do a home and away series, although I don't leave my home, and Ryan didn't leave his uh, home but on the computer. We're doing Zoom, so I Zoomed him, and then he Zoomed me. His YouTube show, he's got lots of different things going on that he interviewed me for one of his shows. A good portion of the show was me showing a few cards. He likes to do that. That's his format. This is just an audio clip of 12 minutes of some stuff that I think would be of interest and not... Uh, uh, a repeat of things I've said on the other 700 and some uh, episodes. Thanks for bringing that out, Ryan. Go to his channel for the video portion, because I, I did show some interesting cards. Again, that's not a big thing for me. I've got a lot of cards. I don't like to play favorites. It's like with kids. I, I like the one I'm holding, but uh, I did show some cards for Ryan, and, and, and that was fun, and discussing uh, what was good and bad and why I chose him. So thanks, Ryan. Thanks, everybody. Here's 12 minutes of Ryan and me. I, I didn't like it when people said, hey, what do you want to pay for this? What's it worth? I'd say, you don't have to give me a specially good deal. I, I want to know what you value this at so I can use that kind of unbiased information in the, the next edition of the price guide. If I get the checklist and I know that this card is this, I can extrapolate if there's an absence of any other data. And then every year we'd get more reporting to further refine what things we're selling for. You'd be surprised how many dealers still ask what do you want to pay for on a card, even though there's so much data out there Forum. People still always at the show. Oh, what do you want to pay for? It's one of the worst things. They're hoping you're going to say something foolish. There's a theory of negotiation that whoever makes the first reasonable offer is probably going to lose because then that anchors. It'll never be better than that. But when I had to throw out a price, I try to throw out something reasonable, but I tried not to try to let the person price their own cards. And it's what you realize is that if you don't know what this card is worth, you might know what something similar is worth. Yeah, that's been the best way, at least judging on some of the different examples that you don't really see at shows. You just have to use your best judgment and you pick up that knowledge so fast as you learn in the hobby. When you learn the different players, the different sets, the releases, you can figure out quickly what something should be worth or what someone else is willing to pay for it based off of its scarcity. But I wanted to go back when you're talking about the type cards. Did you focus primarily on the main American sports or did you branch out also to some of the European sports as well? I know we've seen the surgence of soccer cards within the last few years. I would assume a lot of didn't come over to America for the longest amount of time. Did you travel overseas to grab some of those type cards or you just focus on American stuff? No, there, there was a little bit of a bias against non-North American cards. The British cigarette cards were considered very common and not that collectible because a lot of them you could get the set and they were readily available. So I'm sure some dealers in America maybe stockpiled some, but most of them just thought they weren't illegitimate. They just weren't pursued. There wasn't demand for them because we had our hands full with all the different cards because it's mainly baseball. And their baseball is America. There aren't European baseball cards to speak of. They're Puerto Rican and South American, Venezuelan kinds of Mexican cards. And even those were not highly sought back in the day. People had a want list of the standard sets, and that was a big challenge. Now, as the almanacs grew and we tried to expand the knowledge base, yeah, and people were asking, but the, the non-American sports, the lacrosses, the crickets, we weren't being asked about that very often. Now, I think people are scrambling to see what else is out there that might be interesting. And non-sport and music and celebrity kinds of things. It's all legit, but it just was not in favor. And we had our hands full, Ryan. I wasn't going out looking for work. I had a long list of things I had to do. And uh, once we got done with one price guide, it was time to start another one. So it was year-round doing price guides. 
Yeah, you said people weren't really in favor of the Venezuelans. When did that whole mindset change of people going after some of these other releases? Because like, for example, Ryan, you have four different versions of it. You have the Milton Bradley, the Venezuelan, and also you have the Opichi. And nowadays, the standard tops one is worth the least compared to all the other examples of the Venezuelan being worth the most in a higher grade. Impossible to find in a 10, 9, 8. I don't even know the highest, probably like a 4 or 5. But you know, when did that whole mindset change in the hobby? Because a lot of people right now go after the scarcer type cards. But you were saying in the past, people wanted to go after normal stuff. No, it was too scarce. And it never took off. Nowadays, you want what you haven't seen. But that wasn't the mindset back in the day. If you didn't know it existed, it wasn't on your list. And so like the Venezuelan cards, they never really caught on until some enterprising dealers went down to Venezuela and got enough of them that they could make a market in them. You have to make a market in it. And they went down with a Venezuelan baseball player and put ads in the papers down there and came back with suitcases full of mostly not very good condition cards. Man, I can't imagine. I can't imagine grabbing the suitcases full of Venezuelan cards. It's cheap paper and yep. uh, poor condition. A lot of them were stuck in albums. And so that was looked down upon. That's my point. You, you were trying to complete your tops and Bowman and Playball and Gowdy and other leaf sets, things like that. The things from the 40s, 50s, 30s, the hot dog regional cards. That's what people talked about at the card shows. They weren't saying, hey, who do you need for the Venezuelan set? And, and Opichi, other than hockey, which was preferred... But for baseball, it was an afterthought. They were the same card with its slightly different back and some changes, but not widely collected. And that's why I went, I went to Toronto and I made sure I had a type card for each one of them. But I never had a set of all those. I just wanted to have one to know how they were different. It is interesting that you were saying the food and beverage cards were still super popular. Were they more expensive than the standard tops cards of the era? It was completely flipped. And one of the reasons it flipped is because... It's hard to make a market in something that's too scarce. And then also you can't get the condition hype. The condition rarity of some of those cards is so outrageous that if somebody new into the industry says, this is supposed to be a tough card, but it's only a five. It's a five, but it's rarer than a 10 in a tops card. But they didn't think that way. They just thought, what? again, there's a sweet spot in our industry of if something has to be available, desirable, so that people are going to chase it. And if it's too elusive, like some of these uh, European and, and early Panini stickers that were stuck, I, I have some albums, but they're, they're stuck. <laughs> That's not a great collectible now, comparatively, but the stickers were meant to be stuck. And the same thing with Venezuela, these other Caribbean kinds of sets, they were cheaper. I think that's the reason why the 52 Mantle is as desirable as it is, because even though it was in that last series, it still was a double print. So it has that availability and it's the iconic card. If you think about 50s, 60s baseball and in America and Mantle was that player for so many people, especially being in New York. I mean, his rookie cards in 51 and it goes against the philosophy in the hobby where everyone always says the rookie card is the most valuable card. The second card, some people say 25%, other people say 30%, around 40%, depending on what it is, but it's completely flipped for that card. If you were to say that the, this player has a rookie card and a second year card <clears throat> and the second year card is double printed <laughs> and they're both in a scarce series, that's equivalent. But Tops is more valuable than Bowman just because they were the survivor of the day. But the other thing that happened is the rise of player collecting. And so Mantle has a huge following. You were talking about Nolan Ryan, your namesake. The situation there is that 
the regular Topps rookie card, it is real. It's not plentiful, but it's not a tough card. But the Milton Bradley is <laughs> unbelievably tough, but it's not appreciated because it's too tough. But the player collectors are really serious. I want to have a complete run. It's that vintage worth of a rainbow or something, just that having the different versions. It's the four horsemen. It's funny. There's a subscriber to this channel. He actually lives in Dallas, too. He's going after the highest grades of all the Nolan Ryan cards. I think he's down to two or three. He has nines and tens of everything. It's incredible, man. Like the player collectors out there, the depth that they'll go to grab the best of the best and the scarce cards. That's a real dedication. Real expensive too. Definitely is. So once you ended up selling your company, did you just go straight away to buying cards? Did you take a break a little bit or what ended up happening on that side of things? I took a break. Basically when I sold the company, the acquirers were not interested in the company's cards, many of which had been mined from when I was younger. And I said, a lot of these cards are mine and I can either take a lot of time and kind of split out the ones that are mine. And they said, no, you can just have the cards. So all of a sudden, I'm faced with having a big vault of cards that I moved. And it took a few years to just organize this stuff. So I'd have some of my old employees, not old employees, but my former employees, come on the weekend and, and we'd sort cards and we'd just get it organized and labeled and stuff like that because it was in some disarray when we sold it. Then I thought, well, some of this stuff I don't want to keep and some of this stuff I do and some of the stuff I want to get graded and some of the stuff I want to just give away or sell. And so that's been, I've been doing that for all these years. So I'm more of a seller than a buyer. You know, I always have less cards each year, but I've made it so now the last several years, 10 years or so, probably when I go to a national or a card show, I can sit at a dollar box and spend some money and I'm not moving the needle for anybody, but I don't want to have a short list of what I'm looking for so that I spend two hours at a table and I walk away with two dollar. I want to get a, a couple hundred. And so I'm going to pick some local players, some people that I know that would be interested if they come over or the player himself, plus some cards that are just for me. So that's been fun. So I, I walk away with a stack of cards. I'm not making anybody's day at the show, but I'm having a good time and visiting with people as I go. When you were doing the stuff, you'd have to go overseas pretty much to find out about all the European releases. We didn't do that, though. I'm just saying our, our almanacs were an attempt to do that in book form, but it's it quickly became so heavy and expensive to print that it just wasn't feasible. And that, and no offense, but that was leaving out the European and non-North American kind of sets because we didn't have a lot of data on them and, and we weren't being asked about them. Now, with the internet, you don't have any space considerations. It's hypertext links and stuff. You just you know dig until you get to what you want. But the book form ran into its limitations. Oh yeah, there's no desire for them. People weren't not enough going after or soccer cards. So it made no sense to do that back then. Well, the other thing is, how many people do you read books cover to cover? You don't read the phone book cover to cover. You don't read an encyclopedia cover to cover. There might be one out of a million people that does that. Or read an almanac or a price guide cover to cover. Usually. I did because I was writing it. But it's very rare. So if somebody picked up an almanac and said, I'm going to start at the beginning and I'm going to read about every set. And then I got a baseball encyclopedia or the online version of it or baseballreference.com. And I'm going to go through every player. Okay, you take a lot of perseverance. And by the time you got to the S's, you might be forgetting the A's and the B's. I'll be honest, though. I did that for some of the rookie cards. When I was learning vintage cards, I'd go in the Beckett magazines. I'd go through 50s, 60s, 70s, learn about those type of players. That's probably paying dividends for you. It's a long cut, but it pays long-term dividends. I'm still working off that knowledge that I had from doing that so much. I have some muscle memory, at least, again, for those eras. I'm not as strong as 
like hockey. I just I gave up my season tickets ten years ago, so I don't track hockey very much anymore. It's tough too with all those releases nowadays. Yeah. All the young guns out there, so much. So I wanted to finish off the episode. A few tips, advice for new collectors. What would you give them? It's like when somebody falls in love. You, 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 even if you think that if it's one of my dude friends and he's got this new love, I say, go slow. And they just, no, I'm not going slow. This is the one. I'm all in. So, okay, but just just go slower. And they don't want to hear it because there's passion involved. And I, I respect that, except that there's also money involved. What might be a little bit of money for some people might be a lot of money for other people. So in the context of instead of going out to dinner on some night, you're going to take that money and put it on cards. Okay. But if you're going to take your mortgage payment and put it on cards or something like that, just go slow because there's a cumulative effect of learning and understanding. And the same thing is just like in relationships, there's a cumulative effect of building trust. You didn't just jump out and have a following. You built a following, you built trust, and so now when you're at the shows, people recognize you. They, I guess they recognize me too. But you build up a tr- trust over time. If you come in and immediately say, hey, trust me, and, or, or act you know what you're doing before you know what you're doing, if you take your time and, and going slower, you're going to see that there's some people that are trusted by others. And you know who those are now, and I know who those are. And, and then you say, well, you know what, if I've got a, uh, a question about a certain person or a certain card, here's somebody that will shoot straight with me. And, but if you're rushing into it, you just think, hey, I got this. But And if you're making $10 mistakes or maybe $100 mistakes, that's different than making $1,000 mistakes and 10000 People get caught up in the bandwagon and sometimes the music stops. There's corrections. The other advice is for everybody to think, regardless of what you read, not a bull market, not a bear market, it's a mixed market. Some things go up, some things go down. Most people think this is going to go up. Most people think this is not. Most people are usually right, but nobody is always right. Just go slow and realize it's a mixed market. And we've seen that in the last two years. You've seen it with your own eyes. In fact, you could see it during the course of a weekend. The man 